A year ago tomorrow, we met in this very room to celebrate the 80th birthday of Lord Darndorf with a wonderful colloquium with Jürgen Habermas and Fritz Stern and many people, including members of the Darndorf family who we're delighted to see here today, um, to celebrate that birthday and to have a very fascinating discussion which you can find recorded in the publication on liberty on the table outside. At the end of that colloquium, Fritz Stern said, this was so interesting, why don't you do it again? Why don't you do it every year on Ralph's birthday? Tragically, Ralph Darndorf died only a few weeks later on the 17th of June. But we thought that we should do it again anyway. We thought he'd like us to. So we have established at this college a Darndorf program for the study of freedom, uh, which has really three parts. There is a major research agenda, which focused this year particularly on free speech. We have a small group of Darndorf scholars who are selected from among the students of the college in a competitive process and who do research projects of their own, as well as working with the program. And we have this annual lecture. Um, the program is generously supported by the Aurea Foundation from Canada, the Frit Ord Foundation from Norway, and the Zeit Foundation from Hamburg, a foundation with which Ralph Darndorf was very closely associated for many, many years, uh, as has been this college. And we're delighted to have with us uh, Professor Michael Goering, the chairman of the executive board of the Zeit Foundation, who will say just a few words before we move to the lecture. Professor Goering. Professor Gartenesch, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege for me and for the Zeitstiftung to welcome you this afternoon for the first Ralph Darendorf Memorial Lecture at St. Anthony's. As Timothy just said, Ralph Darendorf has been very close with Die Zeit and the Zeit Foundation. Personal friendships with Marion Dönhoff, with the former chief editor Theo Sommer, and also with the publisher Gerd Bucerius himself, made him a critical observer of and an important advisor to the paper, and of course, an eminent author for Die Zeit, whose articles in Die Zeit always found a very big audience. In 1997, 1998, and beginning of 1999, Ralph Darendorf wrote the biography of our founder, Gerd Bucerius. This made him spend many, many weeks with us in our archive. Those two years were also the formative years of the Zeit Foundation shortly after our founder's death. I personally owe a lot to Ralph Darendorf, as we had many talks while he was with us in the archive. Many projects I discussed with him well before they became projects, and he shaped many of them. He was member of the founding board of the Bucerius Law School, one of the biggest things that the Bucerius Foundation has started so far. And I must say I do miss him. I miss these talks over some cups of coffee and I miss his invitations 
to the House of Lords where we sometimes met and had lunch together. Not that I miss the luncheons too much, <laughs> but I knew that Lord Darendorf always enjoyed showing the splendor and tradition of the Upper House to friends from Germany, and I miss the exchange of ideas. If he were still around and we could meet, I'd like to discuss the growing problem of social inequality with him. The Federal Republic has always been so proud of its rather tight social cohesion. Today, however, the growing concern about the split of society, the greater number of poor people, the diminishing middle class, the integration of our immigrant population is a major topic for many, many foundations in my country. I therefore look forward very much to today's lecture on well-being and inequality in post-industrial societies and on tomorrow's discussion. I wish us all a most fruitful start into a sunny May, a month that will always start with Ralph Darendorf's birthday. Thank you very much. ...has had a remarkable career between business, public life, and intellectual life. Um, he's worked with or for BP, Chase Manhattan, McKinsey's, Merrill Lynch, and Standard Chartered, amongst others. So he knows whereof he speaks. He's been Director General of the CBI, Chair of the Pensions Commission, Chair of the Government Committee on Climate Change, Chair of the ESRC, very relevantly to this university, and became Chair of the Financial Services Authority in autumn 2008 with perfect timing just to greet the largest financial crisis for 70 years. He is also a very notable author and lecturer. Uh, uh, he's given a remarkable series of, of lectures. Um, he's the author of a very interesting book called Just Capital, published in 2001, to which Ralph Darndorf wrote a preface uh, in which Ralph called it a highly original political economy of liberty at a time of global pushes and local pulls. I think we're just about due for a sequel, so maybe we'll have the prequel of the sequel this evening. We're equally fortunate in our commentators, both of whom have flown the Atlantic to be with us today. Uh, on my right, Robert Skidelsky, Lord Skidelsky, is a master of political economy. He's taught that subject at Warsaw, at Warwick University, uh, Warsaw too. <laughs> Uh, he's taught it, I would say, in the House of Lords and as chair of the Social Market Foundation. I've been reading him since I was a boy, since I read Politicians in the Slump in sixth form at school. Um, his great masterpiece is, of course, his three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes, uh, an absolute um, masterpiece of its kind. And I think he probably feels that Keynes has something still to say to us about the state of capitalism today. Uh, and finally, our own Paul Collier of this college and the world, uh, one of this country's and the world's leading development economists. We all knew he was absolutely remarkable. Um, I think the world found out at the latest with the publication of his book, The Bottom Billion, Billion which became uh, a phenomenon
he subsequently published a book called Wars, Guns and Votes, and if you hurry to Blackwell's, you may get his latest book, The Plundered Planet, uh, which is out just after the election. Um, <laughs> before no competition. Before I turn over to Adair, I do have to say one important thing, which is one or two of you will have noticed that we have an election on. Um, what the chair of the FSA says can possibly uh, occasionally play a role in British politics. And therefore, I have to say, particularly to all the journalists present, that this meeting is under the Chatham House rule, which states uh, that you may quote some of the things that have been said, but not attribute them to any identifiable individual. And I would ask you all to respect that until the 7th of May, <laughs> when everything may be quoted, and indeed this discussion will go up on the Oxford University iTunes website. This does not mean, Adair, that you have to sing, um, but we look forward very much to what you have to say. Please join me in welcoming Adair Chapman. Thank you very much and good afternoon, uh, everybody. It really is a huge honour to have been asked to give this uh, first memorial lecture in Ralph's honour. Uh, I first met Ralph some uh, 15 years ago, and I very soon realised that I'd gained not only a good friend, but also a great advisor. As Tim said, he provided a sparkling preface introduction to my book, Just Capital. And he also provided detailed responses to many other lectures or, or essays which I would send him pre or post uh, publication. And he always came back with comments. And since we agreed on many issues, his comments were on the whole supportive, but they were perceptive in their specific criticisms or suggestions of different lines of argument that one ought to look at. But on one occasion, he wrote back and he said, look, honestly, while appreciating my arguments, he was instinctively unsympathetic to my conclusions. My article had been entitled Capitalism and the End of History. And in it, I argued that Francis Fukuyama's end of history, which foresees a sort of convergence of all countries to a sort of mixed economy Switzerland of perpetual peace, was, while certainly not inevitable, that perhaps no other societal endpoint other than that was likely to be stable. <clears throat> Ralph, however, would have absolutely nothing to do with this attempted compromise with the Fukuyama point of view. He was, he wrote back, and I quote, instinctively suspicious of all endisms. <laughs> and indeed he was. The suspicion of endisms, of any idea that society can ever achieve some stasis, beyond which there is no social conflict, was indeed one of Ralph's enduring themes, and it is stated clearly in one of his first and most famous books, Class and Class Conflict in Industrial Society. In the final paragraph of that book, Ralph argued that, I quote, totalitarian monism is founded on the idea that conflict can and should be eliminated. In contrast, the pluralism of free societies is based on recognition and acceptance of social conflict. For freedom in society means, above all, that we recognise the justice and creativity of diversity, difference and conflict. Now, half a century has passed, actually 53 years, 
since Ralph wrote those words. And since then, of course, much has changed. Britain certainly, but even to a degree Germany, have become in some senses post-industrial societies. Even in Germany, by the way, only 20% of people actually now get their employment from manufacturing. And in both countries, there have been transformational increases in the average standard of living. But the issues of social conflict and social competition still remain. One of the major parties in Britain's general election next week has said that British society is broken. And while some, mem some measures of class differentiation, particularly I think in Britain, have become less obvious over the last 50 years, the sort of class differentiation by, by accent, by culture, by what you wear, actually inequalities of income and growth, uh, quantitative inequalities, have grown. So my aim in this lecture is to explore how growing economic prosperity and inequality relate to one another and to perceived well-being, and how those relationships change as the structure of economic activity changes. So while Ralph wrote of class and class conflict in industrial society, my title for this evening is Well-being and Inequality in Post-Industrial Society. Attaining a superior growth rate and thus increasing prosperity was central to political debates in most developed countries in the late 20th century. Now, of course, other issues such as culture, morals, religion, national identity were not entirely present, but the issue of which political party would best deliver material prosperity was often a key electoral battleground in a way which was not true in 19th or early 20th century politics. The shared assumption across the political spectrum was that economic growth, which you could measure through growth in GDP or per capita GDP, would feed directly through to rising well-being, welfare, happiness, contentment, whatever word we want to use for that, and therefore that delivering that success would deliver political success for whichever party managed to achieve it. And the debate was essentially about what policies would achieve that end. The conservative narrative, which was asserted with increasing confidence towards the end of the century, was that free markets were the best way to deliver prosperity, and that significant inequality was acceptable and indeed required, but it was required because it provided the incentives to entrepreneurs, to executives, and to ordinary workers through low taxation, which would ensure innovation, competitive success in global markets, high productivity growth, and thus rising prosperity. So unlike in the 19th century, when conservatives defended inequality and property rights as elements of some sort of natural order, conservative parties have tended to advance an instrumental justification of both markets and inequality. Flexible markets and low taxes on the rich are good for you because they will help, in some indirect sense, make you, the average voter, richer. So parties of the right have tended to be defined less by the classic parameters of conservatism, nation, social order, religion, received morals and culture, and have become instead parties of a liberal economic ideology. Parties of the left, in turn, had to decide how much of this narrative they accepted and how much was compatible with egalitarian instincts. Reactions differed by country and between those parties with strong Marxist traditions and those more willing to accept that the simple amelioration of working class conditions was an acceptable aim of a left-wing party. But the direction of change everywhere was towards at least a partial acceptance, and in some countries, I would say in particular in Britain, 
in a full-scale embrace of a liberal economic ideology. The assumption that markets helped create growth in GDP, that growth in GDP meant social well-being and individual welfare, and that significant inequality was acceptable because, but also to the extent that, it helped deliver enterprise, competitive success, productivity growth, and rising GDP per capita, those assumptions became increasingly shared across the political spectrum. But I think what is interesting is that even as that increasing consensus has grown, economic and social developments have occurred which tend to undermine the assumptions on which it is based. And it's on those developments that I would like to focus this evening. The central fact is illustrated by the next chart, which is taken from Richard Layard's book on happiness. And it sets out the very simple fact that at the levels of income already attained by rich developed countries, which are up there in the top right-hand side, there does not appear to be any strong link, or indeed any link at all, between average GDP per capita and people's perception of their average happiness. Now, of course, one immediately has to understand that there are considerable theoretical and empirical problems in defining and measuring this thing called well-being or contentment or happiness. And indeed, there are theoretical problems in deciding whether average happiness should be the overriding aim of society. Suppose, for instance, that the average citizens of a dictatorial country make themselves very happy uh, by a, a oppressing a small minority. In that, we face all the complex issues of how you add up different people's happiness, uh, which the 19th century utilitarians raised, but never really worked out uh, how to solve. But while these problems certainly make me very wary of the idea that we can define and then pursue some sort of index of gross national happiness, I think it's still important to note that a wealth of data suggests that people in rich developed countries do not feel on average any more content now than 30 years ago, and that, as this chart shows, self-reported measures of happiness in different countries tend to suggest that people's sense of well-being increases as average income per capita rises from very low levels to around, say, 15 or 20,000 pounds per capita per annum, but it then caps out. And that, that empirical evidence, of course, might tend to accord with what common sense would tell us, that freeing people from hunger, ill health, or continuous backbreaking work in either the workplace or the domestic environment is likely to make a big difference to people's self-reported happiness, but that once you have an adequate car, the new car with new styling and better acceleration is not going to transform your long-term happiness, even if it gives you, for the few days that you first got it, a sort of temporary buzz. And that once you've got perfectly pleasant clothes, designed at least with some sense of style, changing them continually to keep up with the latest fashion is going to make less of a difference. Taking the bottom billion, about whom Paul has written, from extreme poverty down in the left-hand corner there to the standard of living achieved in Western Europe by, say, 1970 or 1980, would clearly be transformative. Taking China's 1.4 billion from $3,000 per day per annum today to say $20,000 per annum will probably deliver significant increases in something that we can, with reasonable certainty, label as human well-being. But it is simply not clear 
that further increases in the average measured GDP of already rich societies will make much of a difference to how well-off or content or happy the average citizen will feel. So why is that? Well, in part it follows simply from some concept of a hierarchy of human needs and thus of partial satiation of needs. One winter coat keeps you warm, two winter coats don't keep you warmer, though they may give you a benefit of variety and style, but that is a less important in the hierarchy of human needs than just being warm. And that sensible behavioural assumption, if I can have the next chart, is of course expressed in the formal economics concept of the diminishing marginal utility function. Uh, economists have always drawn charts like this, uh, which show that as you go up on income on the horizontal axis, something, utility, well-being, happiness, whatever it is, tends to go up, but it tends to go up on a diminishing marginal basis. And concepts like that are fundamental to the way that economists are able to manipulate the algebra of these assumptions and end up uh, with some results. But while that classic concept could help explain a curve of steadily declining increase, it cannot explain why the curve might actually turn quite flat, or indeed, as some evidence suggests for some societies, where it might actually go negative. But such a flattening might become more understandable once we think about three ways in which the nature of consumption and its relationship to human well-being is changed by the very fact that we are getting richer. The first of those factors is that the richer people on average are, the more that they are devoting their income to buying goods because other people have bought their goods, those goods, in order to prove that they have relative status. They are buying things in order to feel that they are in with the new fashion and that they have relative status. Now, that is most obvious, for instance, in relation to fashion clothing. One of the reasons why people are willing to spend large amounts of money to buy the latest fashions of clothes is to prove, by being wearing them, that they are able to afford them, that they are as good as the next person. And that, you may say, is a relatively small part of expenditure. But actually, it turns out that there may be quite some significant chunks of expenditure which are of the form of competing for relative status. Let me give you one particular fact. It has been noted that the amount of money that parents spend each Christmas on children has soared over the last 20 years. And that is partly because children are very, very aware of relative status, and they are very, very concerned to make sure that they have the latest gizmo, the latest fashion, the shirt which has David Beckham's name on it, uh, the latest iPod, the latest whatever it is. But there's no sign whatsoever that it has made children on average happier. But a very significant amount of parental income of families is now devoted essentially to keeping up the relative status of each family's children. The second factor which goes on, however, and I think this is a bigger factor as people get richer, is that a higher percentage of their income is devoted to competing for the enjoyment of goods and services which are locationally specific and that we, which, at least in a densely populated country, are in inherited, inherently limited supply. And therefore, what matters, even to enjoying that, is not your absolute income, it is your relative 
income. In order to be able to stay at the hotel on the beach, rather than the hotel half a mile away from the beach, your absolute income is irrelevant. All that matters is your relative income relative to everybody else in society. The same for the hotel on the skiing piste rather than half a mile away from the skiing piste. Now again, you may say, well, that's relatively small, but actually it turns out to be crucially important in one of the things that we spend a very large amount of money on, which is where we live. Other people spend a very significant amount of their income in competing to live in nice places. It's fundamental to your quality of life, whether you live in the part of town which is free of crime or free of graffiti, which looks nice, which is a pleasant place to, to live or not, and also you may compete in order to be able to live nearer your work with a smaller commute. These things are incredibly important to your standard of living, but your ability to get the nicer product, the house in the nicer part of town or the house in the unspoiled countryside or the the house which uh, is in the more pleasantly aesthetic part of town, is not driven by absolute income, it is driven by relative income. And as absolute income goes up, it's very interesting, what tends to happen is that the average price of our houses relative to where our income goes up, we devote more of our income to this competition for relative status. The third thing that is going on, however, is that in some ways, as we get richer, growth produces externalities, environmental effects, where the very process of getting richer produces externalities detrimental to present or future human welfare. Now, actually, interestingly, some of these externalities have improved in the last 50 years. London no longer has the smogs which it used to suffer, and indeed local pollution externalities have declined in pretty much all rich developed countries. But even when we solve those, pure congestion effects remain. Driving a car along a country road in 1950s Britain, for those who could then afford it, was simply a more pleasant, relaxing experience than doing the same today, because you were much less likely to be driving bumper to dump bumper behind the car in front. And the simple fact is that a very large percentage of all car advertisements on television today, which appear to have been shot in rural Scotland or Scandinavia at 4 a.m. on a summer morning, are bound to produce a sense of frustration and road rage since they entice you to buy a product which you will almost never enjoy. <laughs> so in all sorts of ways, as we get richer, if we do not carefully manage the process, increasing wealth degrades the very benefits it seems to make more generally available. The more people who can afford to enjoy the unspoilt beach or countryside, the more spoilt it is. So in each of these three ways. What we have is a fashion in which this standard utility function, which assumes that your utility is a function of your income, isn't right. Because your utility is a function not only of your income, but of the income of everyone else in society. And that is quite a problem for some standard bits of economic theory. Alongside, however, this uh, process of uh, a, a change in the nature of consumption, there also, however, appear to be ways in which the pattern of production is also changing. Roger Bootle, in his recent book, The Trouble with Markets, makes what I think is a very useful distinction between what he calls distributive and creative activities. 
where creative activities are those things which do directly increase at least measured GDP, whether or not that translates into well-being, whereas distributive activities are those things which simply tend to uh, move money from one person uh, to another. They are parts of a zero-sum competition. Now, that distinction between distributive and creative activities has, in fact, always been present in market economies and, indeed, probably in all human societies. So the salesman who wins an order for his firm at the expense of another firm does not directly increase GDP per capita. He makes his firm richer and another poorer. Even more clearly, a clever lawyer whose client wins essentially just redistributes money uh, from the opposing client. And the financial trader who bets well makes money at the expense of the one who bets badly. And so the market economy has never created growth because every person is involved in a directly value-generating activity, but because it is supposed competition between people and firms will tend over time to give advantage to the better idea and the more efficient firm. So the existence of some activities which are purely, in Roger Bootle's terms, distributive, has always been with us. But I think it's highly likely that the relative importance of such distributive activity tends to increase as societies get richer. And it is certainly the case that a disproportionate share of high-skilled human resources appears to get devoted to such purely distributional activities. Financial services, particularly those involved in wholesale trading activities, include a large share of activities which are in their indirect effects, in their direct effects, purely distributive and which are very highly remunerated. And the share of financial services in our economies has grown. Richer societies tend to different degrees to be more litigious societies. Litigation is essentially a zero-sum distributive activity and lawyers are very highly paid. And in rich societies, consumers are able to devote a significant slice of income to buying goods simply because they bear a celebrity brand, buying celebrity A's perfume versus celebrities B's. But brand competition of this sort is, I think, essentially distributive rather than value-added and is distinct in its economic function from the early development of brand branding, which performed a vital important function in enabling consistent quality products to dominate over the multiplicity of poor quality and often, frankly, dangerous products. Now, how far such distributive activities in advertising and PR, in much of financial services and legal services, have increased as a percentage of the total economy? I don't know, but I would suggest it is a very interesting subject for economic research. But some increase, I am fairly certain, has occurred. And it is certainly noticeable that many of the highest paid, and therefore presumably high-skilled people, earn their living from activities where the devotion of higher skills must simply increase the intensity of distributional competition rather than deliver value-added benefits. If high income attracts cleverer people to become divorce lawyers, society does not gain from the increased competition in the courtroom between those different lawyers. So in different ways, therefore, I think an increasingly rich society is both one in which increasing income is likely for behavioural reasons to deliver diminishing marginal improvements in well-being, and one in which more of our productive activities and our consumption is devoted to forms of zero-sum competition, in which relative skill is crucial to success and relative status crucial to the individual's sense of well-being. And I think those changes 
help us to understand why the relationship between average income and contentment might not merely be one of a diminishing curve, but actually flat. Now, in addition, however, in this environment where relative status matters quite a lot and GDP growth has less power to make people happier, inequality has been increasing in rich, developed societies. And it's been increasing along two dimensions. First, there is a tendency most prominent in Anglo-Saxon countries and in particular in the US, but also present, as you were mentioning uh, earlier in, in, in Germany, for the bottom of the income distribution to fall away from the median. Second, a very strong and indeed quite startling tendency, most extreme in the US, but also pronounced in the UK and throughout the developed world, for the top to pull away from the middle and the very rich to pull away from the merely moderately rich. We have a phenomenon where increases in the income of the top decile over the last 30 years have significantly exceeded those of the median. The top percentile has been doing much, much better than the poor, not so very rich top decile. And as for the top 0.1%, uh, well, they've really been worrying the rest of the top percent uh, because they've been really pulling away at a ferocious pace. Now, the first of these two phenomena, the poorer relative position of the poorest, is, I think, probably best explained by a combination of technology and globalization, with freer movement of traded goods and, to a lesser but still important degree, migration, labor, bound in economic theory to reduce the relative income of lower-skilled people in richer countries, even when it increases the average income level. That is what classic trade theory would tell us. The second phenomenon, the richer relative position of the richest, is, I think, rooted in an interplay of factors too complex and multifaceted to address this evening. But I think it includes some which are related to the changing nature of consumption and production, which I referred to earlier. One striking development at the very top of the distribution is increasing returns to stardom and celebrity, to high sporting and artistic skill. Stanley Matthews, the great Stoke City and Blackpool football great of 1950s Britain, never earned from his football genius any more than an adequate middle-class standard of living. He was not in the rich of Britain. David Beckham is in the super-rich. C.S. Lewis, for all his novels, ended up with a very nice, adequate, upper-middle-class income. J.K. Rowling, creator of Harry Potter, is a billionaire. Now, technology and globalization are among the factors at work here, which is the ability of the TV and the internet to make David Beckham and Harry Potter global brands. But actually, rising average income level is also important, because as people's income rise, they can devote more of that rising income simply to providing their children with the latest branded merchandise, which happens to have Harry Potter written all over it, without which their relative status is lost. And buying that merchandise puts huge amounts of money in the hands of celebrities. One of the reasons why Stanley Matthews was not a billionaire was that the ordinary kids of working class Britain in 1950s Britain didn't have enough money to make him a billionaire. And while the superstars are few, once the minor stars and passing celebrities, the agents and the lawyers and the PR firms and the executives of the media channels are included, we have one of the phenomena 
helping to understand this accelerating growth at the top of the income decile. In parallel, meanwhile, the changing nature of consumption and the increasing devotion to goods and services which in the hierarchy of human needs are not essential but nice to have and driven by fashion, emotional appeal, style, means that in some areas of economic activity, highly talented individuals can make their companies very much more successful, very rapidly, and in a highly measurable way. A talented retailer with a flair for store design and ambience, for range selection and for marketing, can make a huge and very immediate difference to a retail chain's success, whereas a talented manufacturing manager can only do so over many years as research and development investment or manufacturing efficiency improvements very slowly reach fruition. And the shorter the time period over which results are achieved, and the more easily that they seem identifiable with the individual rather than the team, the more likely it is that they get reflected in individual remuneration. So I believe that the higher the percentage of our consumption devoted to goods and services, where soft factors like style, ambience and brand matter, the higher will be the naturally arising inequality at the top end of the income distribution. This phenomenon of highly measurable and immediately measurable economic impact, moreover, is particularly present in some of those activities which are most clearly, in Roger Bootle's distinction, distributive rather than creative. The successful lawyer redistributes income in favour of his or her client and away from the other lawyer's client, and his or her success in doing so is immediately apparent in a way which is not true of the research scientist working alongside many others on a drug which will produce patient benefits 10 years down the line. And a similar logic uh, explains why we pay or have paid financial traders so much money. It appears to be measurable how much money they have created. Now, we've actually worked out that sometimes attached to the money that they created in 2007 was a sort of toxic tale of liabilities two years later. And we are trying to fix that problem, but I suspect that even when we have fixed it, we will still have a natural process for financial traders to be one of the forms of highly paid activity in the economy. And therefore, the larger the share of financial services within the economy, the wider, again, will tend to be these income disparities. Finally, these factors I've already mentioned, the nature of celebrity, the nature of jobs where you can make a difference quickly, the nature of these distributed activities, they then help change attitudes. And that in itself unleashes further change. If the world of celebrity and fashion and media generates very high pay, and if there are more highly paid corporate lawyers and investment bankers than in the past, and if there are some businesses such as fashion retailing where the star CEO can make a big difference and get highly rewarded, then the sense among the generality of the income elite of what is normal and justifiable shifts. And in addition, the income that that income elite need in order to end up owning the house in the nice class of town, goes up because their ability to buy that house is driven by their relative income, not their absolute income. If you then add in the impact of a partly global market in executive talent, the role of remuneration consultants with their comparisons between this CEO and that, and the central role which relative status competition plays in the motivation of high talent people, and you have the ingredients for the resentless rise in the relative income of the best off 
which we have seen in the last 30 years. A rise which in the dominant narrative of the last 30 years could be justified because it made the, the economy more efficient and competitive. But actually, there's no clear proof that it has such an effect. The capitalist but somewhat less unequal economies of the 1950s and 1960s produced just as rapid overall growth rates. But conversely, there is some evidence that the scale of the increase in inequality may have undermined average well-being. Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, in their recent book, The Spirit Level, present evidence that a society where the bottom of the income distribution has drifted away from the median will be one in which a wide range of common sense indicators of well-being look worse. Indicators like worse health or higher crime. And that extreme inequality and awareness of inequality at the bottom end has a direct impact on the well-being of the less successful, because, precisely because they feel they have lost out badly in a competition for relative status, a feeling which actually can be worse the more apparently meritocratic the society is, rather than one defined by unmovable uh, class barriers. Now, of course, one question in relation to all this is whether all that matters in this respect of inequality is the relationship between the bottom and the median, or whether the relationship between the median and the top is also important. And of course, a classic liberal or conservative argument has been that the latter does not matter, both because the numbers at the very top are so small that any attempt to redistribute their income via progressive taxation would only make a trivial difference to the average or poorer citizen, or, or indeed, if we're talking about a very small scattering of billionaires, that the lifestyle of the celebrity rich is so detached from ordinary people that people can, as it were, by reading Hello! magazine at the dentist, gain the thrill of vicarious interest without actually being made less happy through unachievable status competition. And it is true that people often seem intensely concerned about their position relative to those very close to them in the income distribution, and not so concerned about people who appear to live simply on a different planet. But arguably, I think that indifference to the much richer may change if, in addition to, as it were, a little thin scattering of billionaires, it is the whole of the top decile which pulls away, enjoying a highly visible and reasonably widespread standard of living to which a broad mass of people aspire, but which only a minority can ever achieve, given that the standard is defined by relative income, not by absolute. So let me sum up my argument so far. I've described a classic political narrative in which the market economy and significant inequality were required and justified because they delivered economic growth which delivers well-being. But I then observed that empirical evidence suggests that in most rich developed countries, further economic growth does not seem to be producing an increase in perceived well-being. And I suggested that that may be explained by a combination of four things. The classic concept of diminishing marginal utility rooted in the common sense observation of a hierarchy of human needs. The changing nature of consumption in richer societies, which makes it increasingly the case that one person's utility is affected by other people's income, as well as his or her income, with relative status competition quite important. The changing nature of production activities, which means that a greater relative share of purely redistributive activities is probably occurring, and with those purely redistributive activities actually being among the highest paid. And increasing inequality, which certainly matters as between the bottom and the median, and which may also matter to human well-being as between the median and the top. All of which, if it is true, creates a major challenge 
to the dominant and increasingly cross-party narrative of late 20th century politics, in which growth delivers well-being, growth requires markets, and markets require inequality, therefore vote for deregulation and low taxes because it's going to make you, the average citizen, richer and therefore happier. The fact is that the narrative doesn't appear to fit the facts any longer. So what follows? Well, first I'd like to reiterate that I am more wary than some others, for instance, more wary than my very good friend Richard Layard, of the idea that we should make increased happiness the explicit and formal objective of economic and social policy. And that's for two reasons. First, as I already said, I think the problems of aggregating different individual happinesses are truly intractable. I think no additive quantification of utils of happiness will ever prove that it is wrong for the majority to maximize their happiness at the expense of oppressing a minority. I think we need to introduce an absolute concept of justice as well as a utilitarian quantification of utils. But second, because even at the level of each individual, our measures of happiness are, I think, highly imperfect and will remain so. I think they're good enough to tell us that there is no necessary reason to believe that growth will deliver more happiness, but not good enough to tell us with any precision whether society is getting happier year after year. So we do not have, and I suspect never will have, the ability to construct a gross national well-being index whose maximization should now be pursued instead of GDP per capita. Rather, I think our knowledge lies in knowing what is not true, but knowledge of untruth is still valuable knowledge. And I think we know with a high degree of probability that the idea that growth in average GDP per capita will necessarily translate into perceived human well-being or happiness is almost certainly not true beyond the levels of income already achieved in the rich developed world. So what follows from that partial knowledge? Well, of course, some might suggest that what follows is what I might call a radical green socialism, strongly egalitarian uh, in order to undermine the corrosive impact of relative status competition by just telling people, pack up on that. I'm not going to let you do it because I'm going to tax you enough that you can't even try. And opposed in principle to economic growth since it uh, has no positive benefit and generates harmful externalities. So is that right? Have the arguments in favour of the market economy as the route to innovation and productivity growth simply collapsed? Well, I don't believe so, and indeed I believe that a powerful case still exists for a market economy, and as a result, necessarily, because let's clear, be clear, it immediately follows, as a result for accepting non-trivial inequalities, but that the arguments are more complex, less instrumental, and in some sense more fundamental than those which have recently been advanced. I think five considerations are important. First, some level of economic growth does still matter, even in already rich countries. Because even in rich countries, there are some at the bottom of the income distribution for whom additional income, in absolute or relative sense, still has the potential to deliver increased well-being. And it is very difficult to improve their position without growth, because redistribution without growth will be very strongly resisted. People may not gain permanently greater well-being from additional income, but they may deeply resent having to sacrifice existing already attained levels of income or wealth. In technical economist terms, the shape of their utility functions is not an absolute given, but is a function 
of the income which they have already attained. Another problem with the way we draw these things. In behavioural terms, people habituate to existing standards of living or wealth, and they then end up with deeply ingrained senses of accrued rights. Growth in classic measured GDP form is almost certainly required to lubricate any desirable redistribution. Second and more fundamentally, however, I think growth arguably should be seen not as the desirable objective which justifies the existence of economic freedom, but rather as the acceptable but not particularly important byproduct of economic freedom which is valuable in and of itself. The reason why people should be free to start a business, to innovate new products, to propose new retail formats or closed designs, or to make existing production processes more efficient, is not that this economic change is good because it will make people permanently happier, but that the human desire to innovate, to change, to experiment is naturally arising, and that the freedom to express this desire is in itself conducive to well-being. The Soviet Union, in its final stagnation period, scored low on human happiness, as measurable by some pretty absolute measures of human happiness, such as the propensity to alcoholism or suicide. And I suspect it did that not only and perhaps not primarily because its production system failed to deliver the consumption goods available in the West, but because the organisation of production trapped people in stultifying routines, refusing them the right to develop new ideas, new ways of doing things. Freedom to innovate and change is an end in itself, not an instrumental means to higher GDP. But if we have that freedom to change and innovate, that will tend to generate productivity growth, and productivity growth means economic growth unless unemployment rises. And one thing we know for sure is that involuntary unemployment makes people very unhappy. Rising GDP per capita is therefore, I suggest, the unavoidable and acceptable, but not the objective, the unavoidable and acceptable concomitant of two desirable ends, economic freedom and full employment, rather than the end in itself. The third point, however, is that this freedom to innovate, to challenge, to uh, do new things, is likely to be important not only for the opportunities it gives on the production side of the economy, but for the consumption possibilities that it delivers. Because even if more and better products and services have decreasing capacity to make people permanently happier, the potential for change, for innovation, may in itself be important to human contentment. If average income doubles in the next 30 years, we have no reason to believe we, that we will then, on average, be happier. But the anticipation that the next 30 years will bring some new products, new services, new ideas, new fashions and styles may in itself be important to our current contentment. The journey may be important, not the destination. Clothes fashions do not, in any objective sense, get better. They simply change year by year. And every now and then, they simply revert to patterns seen decades before. And there is no reason to believe that in 30 years' time, people will feel happier because of the clothes that they are then wearing relative to the clothes that they wear today. But the very fact that each year brings new fashions with different designers competing to attract customer approval may be important to some people's contentment, even while it creates anxieties for others. The next generation of electronic gadgetry, whatever lies beyond iPods, iPhones and high-definition TVs, will not make people permanently more content, but the expectation that the market will create new ideas and products may be important to many people's sense of progress and direction. 
and the absence of new ideas and products and styles might generate a sense of dullness and stagnation. The experience and the expectation of change can be important to current contentment, even if change will not make us permanently more content. Fourth, it is highly likely that the absence of markets and economic freedom will tend to lead not merely to low growth, but to complete stagnation and indeed regression. That was the case in the Soviet Union in the final stagnation years, with measures of GDP growth actually negative and measures of well-being, as I've said, such as alcoholism or suicide, suggesting an absolute decline. And one of the reasons for that was relentlessly rising corruption. As individuals channeled their natural human propensity to compete for relative status into corrupt competition for the existing economic cake, rather than the creation of new businesses or products. And a crucial, though you may find it slightly odd, justification of market competition and of significant resulting inequality is therefore simply that we are not going to change human nature and that if people are not able to compete for relative status through the marketplace, they will end up competing in more harmful ways. And that thought is actually found, like so much other wisdom, in Keynes's The General Theory where he noted, not, not only, and I quote, are there valuable human activities which require the motive of money-making and the environment of private wealth ownership to, to reach their full fruition, but that, quote, moreover, dangerous human proclivities can be canalised into comparatively harmless channels by the existence of opportunities for money-making and private wealth, which, if they cannot be satisfied in this way, might find their outlet in cruelty, reckless pursuit of personal power and authority and other forms of self-aggrandizement. As I say, you may think that's a slightly odd argument, but I actually think it may be a rather <coughs> deep one. Fifth and finally, attitudes to inequality, even among the less well-off, are nuanced, and the impact of rising average income on concerns about inequality is ambivalent. On the one hand, rising prosperity increases the importance of positional goods and competition for relative status. On the other hand, some average earners are likely to be much more relaxed about inequality simply because they have a perfectly adequate standard of living. Once you have a car, does it matter if someone has a bigger car? Well, the answer is, for some people it matters a lot, and for some other people it doesn't matter at all. And as a result, concerns about inequality often relate to its degree, not its existence, and are often related to concepts of fairness. Where inequalities are based on factors which people can intuitively understand, artistic or sporting talent, high professional competence, or a wide and obviously onerous span of responsibilities, or where people feel that business success and high remuneration derives from free choices that they directly have made, I chose to go to that restaurant, therefore the restaurant owner is successful in getting richer, even very significant inequalities produce little concern. Where they are perceived as deriving from activities whose value people do not comprehend or which they doubt, as has become the case with some financial services activity, it is deeply resented. There is therefore, I believe, a compelling case for economic freedom, for the market economy, and for treating the economic growth and non-trivial economy which will result as acceptable and inevitable byproducts. But I think it is a quite different case from that advanced in the last 50 years. And as a result, it may have quite different implications for optimal policy. Though I have to say, I'm not absolutely sure what the implications of all this are. And uh, when I sent uh, Robert a copy of my speech in a, a advance two days ago so that he could respond to it, 
I wrote here, this section to change, still thinking what the implications are. And indeed, I was still thinking about them uh, on the way up from London. But let me suggest a few. First, if GDP growth is not the objective, we should not treat potentially adverse consequences on growth as key arguments against other desirable objectives. Nick Stern argues that mitigating climate change might only cost one year out of the next 40 years of GDP growth of 2% per annum. But even if the potential loss was much bigger than that, the downside in human well-being of sacrificing quite a big slice of GDP growth might be very close to nil, and therefore we should take it. The second is that economic stability is probably more important than economic growth. Radical financial deregulation was justified on the grounds that it would improve the growth rate and that greater instability risks were acceptable to achieve that end. But if increases in average prosperity have at best limited ability to foster perceived well-being, while setbacks to already achieved income clearly harm it, and unemployment harms it even more so, then the bias of policy should be towards moderating fluctuations in growth rather than maximising it. Third, that while there is a case for accepting significant inequality, we cannot avoid a debate about the degree, and we don't have a nice easy metric of saying that the optimal degree is that which maximises growth. Rather, we are in the difficult space where attitudes to acceptable or desirable inequality, and thus to the degree of progressivity in income or inheritance tax systems, are inherently judgmental and political. Keynes believed, as I said earlier, that there was a case for inequality because there were valuable human activities which required it and because dangerous human proclivities would otherwise be canalised into harmful activities. But he also believed that, and I quote, it is not necessary for the stimulation of these activities and the satisfaction of these proclivities that the game be played for such high stakes as at present. I have some sympathy with that conclusion as it relates, for instance, to the stakes for which the gain has recently been played in the financial sector. But it does not leave us with, but that thought leaves us without a guiding criteria on which to judge how high the stakes should be. Fourth and finally, if measured GDP growth is not the objective but an acceptable byproduct, but if there are particular forms of economic growth which might tend to feed more directly through to human well-being, i.e. where we're more confident that there is a relation to well-being, then we cannot avoid the fact that the pattern and mix of economic growth might be as important or more important than the absolute growth rate. If, for instance, we do assume, and I would, that medical advance is conducive to well-being, improving health during life, preventing premature deaths and increasing longevity, then we might prefer investments that would speed medical advance, even if measured GDP relative to what it would otherwise be was slightly less, with, for instance, the consumption of other goods reducing as a result. And in general, we might logically favour those forms of consumption which were least likely to result in an intensification of relative status competition. Thus, if, for instance, we believed that the creation of attractive and shared urban environments was more likely to deliver permanent increases in well-being than increasingly ferocious competition to afford branded fashion goods, then more public expenditure on the former and less private on the latter might be a perfectly sensible choice. All of which, however, carries great dangers. For once you no longer have a defined maximand, our social and economic decisions lack useful constraints. And each interest group is able to argue that their specific proposal is best for human welfare, even if in reality its primary purpose 
is to serve their narrow interest, because even architects of beautiful human spaces are no freer of the human proclivity to pursue their own self-interest uh, than any other human being. Faced with that danger, I say, know that some may wish to stick to the economic growth target as at least something objective, to hold on to the hand of nurse for fear of finding something worse. But I think we do have to let go of nurse's hand, because the narrative that growth delivers human well-being and that inequality is instrumentally justified because the market economy delivers more growth has lost its power. And it has lost its power because of a wonderful achievement. The attainment over the last 200 years and through the power of the market economy of an average standard of living in most developed countries sufficiently high that further improvement in the average standard of living isn't terribly important. And again, the thought can be found in Keynes, this time in his 1930 essay on economic possibilities for our grandchildren. Calculating the long-term impact of even quite modest growth at 2% per annum, he foresaw an early 21st century economy which could entirely banish poverty as his society would have defined it, satisfy most human wants beyond the dreams of most people living in his time, and do so while also hugely extending leisure hours. Well, we did it, and we're still not satisfied. And perhaps the key conclusion is that we never will be satisfied, that difficult social choices and conflicts do not derive simply from a scarcity of resources which can be banished by any level of economic growth, nor is there some level of prosperity, some end point, beyond which the human proclivity to compete for relative status declines. As Keynes said, we cannot transmute human nature, but the essence of politics is an endlessly changing, never resolved debate as to how best to manage the implications of that human nature. That debate should be informed by good social science to which Ralph's professional life was devoted. And good social science tells us that it's not true that economic growth will make people on average happier or make social conflict go away. And the justification for economic and political liberalism lies not in its ability to generate economic growth which will make conflicts disappear but in the celebration of variety, diversity, and difference as ends in themselves. And I think, had I been able to send this lecture to Ralph for his comments, this is one conclusion with which he might have agreed. Thank you very much. Britain is exceptionally fortunate in having such an outstanding public servant as Adair Turner. Um, the qualities which make him so have just been on scintillating display in this first Darendorf Memorial Lecture. Uh, the rigor of his thinking, the wide range of his interests, his exuberant curiosity, and his passion for ideas and for communicating them. His lecture sets a standard which will challenge future lecturers in this series. It attempts to answer the question, why um, does rising average income no longer deliver a rising sense of well-being? I accept both the premise and the importance of the question, uh, and that is particularly for rich societies like the United Kingdom. The question is important because post-war politics in Western societies have been based on the, on the promise of continuous economic growth. Um, economic growth was seen as the solvent of social conflict, um, the uh, generator of social contentment. 
Um, in Adair's view, the growth objective led inevitably to the embrace of competitive markets and acceptance of at least a degree of inequality by the left. As he puts it, the shared assumptions across the political spectrum was that economic growth would feed directly through, through to rising well-being, welfare, happiness, contentment, or whatever word we use. I want to come back to that whatever word we use, because I think if there's a flaw in the lecture, it lies somewhere there. Um, the, fact, <laughs> the fact that it has for some time failed to do so, that is, failed to generate um, these desirable um, goals, has shattered the consensual and philosophic basis of post-war politics. Well, why? What's his answer to the question? Why um, uh, doesn't an increase in average GDP per, per, per person translate into a corresponding increase in the average sense of well-being? I think, well, he offers two main reasons. The first is the familiar law of diminishing returns. Um, extra goods produce diminishing satisfactions. You have a J-curve, in other words, which was illustrated by the diagram from Layard. But in addition, changes in consumption and production patterns associated with growth, growing wealth have had a flattening effect on, on, on the happiness curve. The more discretionary our consumption becomes, the more important um, becomes relative income and the struggle for relative income. And I would add uh, the forces of envy um, and greed. Um, and the richer the society, the larger the fraction of GDP made up of distributional rather than value-adding um, goods and services. And again, this is an area Dare is particularly concerned with as regulator, chief regulator of the financial services industry. And Adair also points to the negative, to the rising negative externalities of production. I don't know uh, whether this was in his talk, but it was uh, in, his, in his written lecture, like congestion and pollution. And what was certainly in his talk, the startling increase in inequality, particularly in the tendency of the bottom and top of the income uh, distribution to pull away from the median. Now, I would agree with that, most of that analysis. I think it's very much to the point. Um, but I have one major quibble. Um, maybe it's only a minor quibble. Um, but, uh, and that is that Adair seems to put too much weight on the declining marginal utility of money. Um, it's perfectly true that any good taken unit by unit um, yields progressively less utility. And as he says, one winter coat keeps you warm, two winter coats don't. But there are many varieties of winter coat, and there are many other goods um, which, uh, for which the demand um, is pretty insatiable. Um, uh, applied to the consumption of a single category of good, it's fine, but, but you, you, can have, um, you can have too much of one good without satisfying your need for another. Um, as the Swedish uh, saying goes, you have a separate stomach for dessert. Um, and the law falls to pieces completely when applied to new or different goods as they are rolled out by the production machine over time. Since, there's virtually un since there are virtually unlimited opportunities for adding to such products, the urgency of wants um, is, 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 remains undiminished. And so there's no reason to postulate a state of satiation. Um, 
To the extent that economic growth continually adds to the variety of goods and services offered for consumption, it's hard to see why you get a J curve. Um, um, uh, uh, that argument doesn't lead to one. I'd like to frame, I would prefer to frame this argument slightly differently and to say that the longing for more and more consumption goods and, and often trivial consumption goods is a classic case of Marxist false consciousness. I mean, our, 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 our society is set up in a way to encourage one kind of consumption um, uh, as against other kinds of goods, which are simply not available um, from the way it's set up. And those goods include very valuable goods. I, they're not consumption goods. Um, as someone recently said to me, and I think this is important, access to credit is modern capitalism's substitute for the welfare state. Um, so you can use that uh, concept also to explain much of what's, uh, what's happened recently. The key principle of policy which Adair adduces is that, I quote him, and he said this towards the end of his uh, speech, we should not treat potentially adverse consequences on growth as decisive arguments against other desirable objectives. Objectives like mitigating climate change, uh, beautifying the urban environment, economic stability, um, and, uh, and, and, and greater equality. In fact, he echoes Galbraith in urging us to redress the balance between private affluence and public squalor. And the real case for economic freedom is not the instrumental one, um, but that it promotes variety, diversity, and difference. And this can best be appreciated if it's delinked from a purely instrumental rationality. I think that's an important uh, point uh, worth pondering. Uh, but I have one question here. How, how far would Adair go in limiting globalization? It's true, there are powerful non-economic arguments for globalization, but for economists, the main argument has always been an instrumental one. It raises world average GDP per capita through its superior efficiency in allocating resources. And it's a mighty instrument, as we know, for alleviating poverty in developing countries. But applied to rich countries, the case for globalization is far from clear. The reason is that it contributes directly to the increased inequality, which Adair identifies as a key reason for the flattening of the happiness curve. For example, immigration depresses the relative wages of the unskilled, the native unskilled. This is the reason, this is of course the reason that employers um, favor it. Uh, let's try a, a, a quick thought experiment. Imagine what might happen to income dispersion without immigration. Uh, surely, under conditions of autarky, we would expect the wages of unskilled workers to rise relative to the skilled, or at least to keep pace um, as unskilled workers become rel scarce relatively to the demand uh, for unskilled labor created by the expansion of the retail end of the service sector and the construction industry, both, 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 both of which occur as societies get richer. In other words, there's no real reason, apart from globalization, for the wages of the unskilled to decline relative to those of the skilled, just because the unskilled become scarcer as education expands and, and tertiary and higher education. So I think this, this is an, an example, and, 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 and I raise it, um, not 
and I raise it just to make the point that people who are worried about immigration aren't all bigoted. <laughs> um, my, final, my final comment is of a more philosophical nature. Um, Adair wants to wean our societies away from excessive re reliance on growth. His method is to point out that beyond a certain point, growth does not add to the subjective feeling of, of contentment. But in making this argument, he implicitly accepts that some measure of contentment should be a goal of policy. Now, I know he, he actually sort of shies away from that. Rather late in his lecture, he introduced the, alter, uh, the, he introduced the concept of justice as, as an independent value. But mostly he hedges by using the terms happiness, contentment, welfare, and well-being as synonyms. But in fact, they're very, very different from each other. The language of happiness and contentment has its source in the economist's notion of subjective want satisfaction. Welfare has an objective correlate in such things as life expectancy, uh, health, years of schooling, and so on, which have no direct relationship to subjective feelings of happiness. But uh, Now, we use these things, we like them, because in principle, they're quantifiable. Um, and therefore, they start an argument on a so-called scientific basis. And it's the only language we really have for conducting this argument. Well-being is problematic, because that's a moral word, really. It, it, it refers to quality rather than quantity. It, it, it refers to some concept of the good life, but we, we, we can't talk about it. Because as soon as we start talking about that, we sound like the Archbishop of Canterbury, and you know, that's not what... That's not what. That's not, you know, how how um, scholars should should talk about these things. Um, and I just want to I just want to um, illustrate one little, you know, the strange phenomenon of happiness studies. A number of economists, notably Richard Layard, um, have revived Bentham's original project of providing an independent measure of happiness. Inspiration has come from neuro neurological studies showing a close correlation between reported happiness and certain kinds of brain activity. And social surveys recorded, recording that beyond a certain level, increased income doesn't make people happier. So if happiness has an objective measure, independent of consumer choice, then we have a respectably scientific value-neutral platform from which to criticize the unrestrained uh, pursuit of growth. And that's exactly what Richard Layard does. But, it, it, but of course, it fails, this project. Um, for, for reasons that should be obvious to anyone who isn't a relentless utilitarian. Um, uh, uh, first, um, you know, the concept shares the characteristic subjectivism um, of, 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 of the modern world. Um, for the ancients and medieval thinkers, a happy life was a successful and admirable one. Today, it signifies merely a life filled with pleasant states of mind. Such a life need have nothing worthy or admirable about it. It might be a product of constant drug use, for example, um, or full frontal lobotomy. Um, and, and of course, Adair, no more than I, wants to make um, this a goal of national policy. But some, the language he's driven to sort of, you know, opens, opens this up. And, and, and also, um, 
happiness understood in this Benthamite sense can't provide us with a measure of sufficiency against which to criticize um, the, the, the uh, continual um, uh, expansion of wealth. Uh, we don't really want to substitute uh, uh, the hedonic headmill, uh, uh, treadmill for the growth treadmill. So the main message I got um, from Adair's lecture is that some ways of life are intrinsically more valuable than others and that we should not sacrifice these on the altar of continuous economic growth. But I'm not sure he has yet found the right language for talking about these things, and I think it is an ex extremely difficult language to find, because we have to, at some point, introduce moral, moral considerations, and that's something we shy away from. Uh, but he has opened up a rich, fascinating, important subject, um, and no one could have done it more stylishly. I'm an economist. Um, but not a, not a very orthodox one. I, 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 mean, I, I have to say I regard the utilitarianism as, as sort of the ethics of Disneyland. Um, though diminishing marginal utility, um, well, I'm just reminded of a cartoon in The New Yorker of a, of a businessman surrounded by piles and piles of money and hovering above the businessman is the fairy godmother. And she's saying to him, remember, this is your last wish. Are you sure you want just more money? <laughs> um, so maybe marginal utility of money just goes on and on and on. <laughs> um, let me start with some remarks broadly within my competence as, as an economist. But I'm an economist at St. Anthony's. So the, 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 the pleasure of that is that you can, you can go completely outside your discipline, and I will, I will stray firmly into the range of my ignorance and incompetence. Um, but let me start with, it with first just a remark about, about the bottom billion, which um, I'm going to very much agree um, with Lord Turner that um, the, the growth is not, not at all a good measure of, of, of rising well-being. It shouldn't be our objective, but I just want to emphasize what he himself said in his, his, his lecture, that that's not true for the bottom billion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that they're not in the range where further income doesn't raise happiness. Uh, and I'm very worried that often the disc, our discourse uh, gets picked up by these little societies and internalized as their own discourse. And we must be very careful that that doesn't happen. Incidentally, let me just have a remark about Ralph here. That the, uh, the opening sentence of, of my book, The Bottom Billion, is the third world has shrunk to Africa. That's actually a sentence from Ralph. Um, it was years ago. And I, it turned in my mind over and over for a decade and eventually came out as The Bottom Billion. Um, <coughs> The, let me start with some, with, with, with a part of Lord Turner's analysis, which is the, the economy of distribution relative to the economy of creativity. And it's what, it's, a, it's an idea that's been around in economics for a long time, 40 years or so. It's the, the concept of, of rent seeking. 
and I think it's, it's very important insight that, that, uh, that De Vere has here, that, that over time, the, proportion, the size of the rent-seeking economy has got bigger relative to the productive economy. Um, and and rent-seeking is, is all over the place, um, most obviously within the financial sector, where um, some of it verges on the criminal, but, but some of it doesn't, but is still basically the very high returns to very short-run information, which is of no social value whatsoever. It's just a transfer from one to another. It's rent-seeking. Um, and that sector has got bigger and bigger and bigger in our economy, not just, not just finance. Um, let me give you a, a, an example that, that otherwise would never occur to you. Um, and it's, uh, it's related to schooling in Britain. Um, I wrote a little article in, I think, The Independent, which was very controversial, and it just made this point, that um, in Britain, we, the ordinary household actually spends a lot on its children's schooling, on getting uh, a better school for its children. But the way it spends is through the housing market. Everybody tries to buy a house in a good area. Now that is what economists call a zero-sum game. It's entirely rent-seeking. Right? What it does is a lot of money is spent on education, but none of it reaches education. None of that money actually reaches schools. Right? What, we have, what we have refused to allow in public policy is that the average parent could put money into schools. Right? You can't do that. The only way you could do that is totally step out of the public sector and the, the tiny 7% who do that. Right? So the 93% who are in the public sector, they, they spend a fortune on their children's education. None of it reaches schools. Right? That's rent-seeking or the distribution economy instead of the creative, the productive economy. Right? That's how we've designed our, our public policy. So that rent-seeking is getting bigger and bigger. Rent-seeking shows up in the growth statistics, but it doesn't show up in people's living standards. It's a sham. Right? And the last decade of British growth is largely illusory. What are the big sectors that grew? Financial sector and estate agency. Right? The estate agency sector became bigger than the manufacturing sector, I believe. Right? Um, so that's, that's um, as far as my core competence is going to go today. I want to step um, really out of that altogether. Um, well, I'll just make one passing remark, which, yes, globalization accounts for some of the increase in economic inequality. Yes, migration through competition with uh, indigenous uh, low-skill labor uh, widens inequality. Um, but I don't believe that um, uh, the, 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 the reason why um, the people at the bottom have fallen away from the median, I don't believe that is predominantly caused by economic processes. It's a measurable economic consequence of much more fundamental social processes. Now, having said that, I'm immediately way outside my core competence because I'm going to talk 
about that it's not the economy, as it were. It's, it's the social processes that are doing it. And um, let me, let me um, try uh, uh, what, what you might well decide is a completely mad um, uh, comparison. Um, and this is going to be between what happened over the last 40 years in Britain and in France, but it's also, it's, I believe it's true more largely for, for the Anglo-Saxon economies versus the, the continental economies. And it, it's, uh, in, in both societies, um, they started 40 or 50 years ago with, with class war. And class war was fought on two fronts. Uh, one on an economic front and the other on a cultural front. Now, as, as Adair says, class war is largely over. But it's largely over um, because um, those battles have been fought and won and lost in each society. In Britain, the economic battle between the middle class and the working class was won by the middle class. That's why one manifestation of that is very poor social protection. Very, very low old age pensions and things like that. So in Britain, the middle class won the economic war. In continental Europe, the middle class lost the economic war. So you've got vastly better social protection. But now the culture war. And in Britain, the middle class lost the culture war. By that, I mean that um, whereas in the 1950s, people of modest means would have aspired roughly to a middle class style of life, or the middle class would have maintained its standards and working class people would have maintained a, a counterculture. By now, we all have absorbed the culture of the working class. We daren't say anything else. We daren't say middle class culture is superior. Right? And if you want one trivial example of that, you just look at uh, the rise of football as the cultural norm, right? or celebrity as a cultural norm. Right? So in Britain, the middle class won the economic war, but the working class won the culture. You look at our newspapers. Right? You look at the decline of our newspaper. Well, you look at television, the collapse in the quality of public television. Whereas in France, exactly the opposite happens. The working class wins the economic war, hence very good social protection, but the middle class wins the culture war. That if you take a, a, an average working class household in France or anywhere in continental Europe, their aspirations are basically set by the norms set by the, by the middle class. Now, that difference in the outcomes of the, of the class wars then has massive repercussions for uh, the collapse of the, of the households at the bottom. They lose the social norms of the middle class in the Anglo-Saxon economies. That is then compounded by a collapse in social cohesion. And that collapse in social cohesion produces social breakdown at the bottom. The lack of the unemployment, so you get now in Britain three generations with no member of the, no, with no adult 
who's ever worked. You get a big rise in um, single parent families, in teenage pregnancies, a collapse in the, as it were, the standard, what was the, the, the lower middle class norms of, uh, of prudence and uh, probity, um, which, which, which got mocked out of existence in, in Britain. Um, because of that lack of social cohesion, the real reason for the, let me restate that, the real, the dominant reason for the impoverishment at the bottom of our society, the poorest decile, is not the economic forces of globalization. It's the social forces that have broken up the order of, of, the, bo of, of the bottom of society. And because of that, there's less sympathy with the poor than there used to be. And here I cite a survey last year by the Roundtree Foundation, um, which surveyed attitudes to inequality in Britain. And was amazed by what it found. Because what it found was that uh, most people thought, yes, the poor were poor. They deserved to be poor. Right? The sympathy which 50 years ago we'd have felt is no more because it seemed that the poor deserve their fate. And of course, they don't, but they, are, they can be, as it were, the reasons for their poverty are not fundamentally the giant economic forces of globalization. They're the micro forces of family collapse. So I end with a very uncomfortable note that here we have the phrase in Lord Turner's the celebration of variety, diversity, and difference, that celebration ends in itself. But the celebration of variety, diversity, and difference are actually synonymous uh, with saying goodbye to social cohesion. Maybe that is a wonderful, wonderful thing that has made life vastly richer for the middle class, but maybe it's made life vastly more difficult for the people at the bottom of society. Thank you. We're now going to go um, back in reverse order, obviously picking and choosing from the smorgasbord of comments and questions. Paul, is there anything you'd like to pick up? Um, only very little. I think um, David Goodhart's point that we've got sort of convergence in politics, divergence in uh, society. Um, Maybe, maybe the convergence in politics is a, is a recognition of the, of the failure of the, uh, the sort of market-driven economy of the, of the 80s and 90s. I think nobody's really advocating going that th that's the model to, to emulate. And so um, the, 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 there is a big policy divergence, um, but it's between uh, the statist and communitarian approaches uh, to quality of life, uh, rather than uh, to the ideology of the market that was so pronounced two decades ago. Thank you. Robert. Well, um, I, I just wanted to make two comments. I mean, first of all, um, I do think um, um, Paul Collier's uh, um, contrast between the, 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 different the, the, the different fates of the two class wars on the continent and, and the United Kingdom is, is 
interesting and profound. I, I, I feel I felt that very strongly. The middle classes have won the economic war but lost the cultural war in this country. And that's what people mean when they talk about dumbing down and, and um, all that. And I think the, we have the most horrible media in the world almost, and that is a direct consequence um, of, of some playing, playing to um, a presumed uh, idiocy in, uh, in the population, which I don't think is there, um, but that's the diet they're given. Um, on David's point, um, David Goodhart, um, I, do, I do think your paradox, it, it is an interesting one. Um, as, as, um, as income dispersals increased, so political uh, convergence has grown. I think it's partly uh, due to the fact that uh, political parties have declined enormously and political parties were actually the ways um, of mobilizing opinion and, and, and creating argument in politics. They don't exist any longer um, uh, and uh, in that form of course they exist but party membership has gone, interest in political issues has declined enormously and what's left is something rather vapid I mean, in, in other words, you know, um, you, you're in favor of, of God and apple pie. Everyone's in favor of good things. And it's partly reflected in, in certain trends in policy, but I think many of the dominant trends have been more in the direction that Adair Turner described rather than this um, agreement um, on, on a social democratic state. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see that translated much more into policy um, by whoever wins the next election than, um, uh, than, than I think um, you're, you're suggesting. Thank you very much, Robert. Adair, there's obviously a huge amount to chew on there for your next book. Would you like to pick and choose if you well, want? Well, let, let me begin with David Goodhart's uh, point. And well, one possibility is that this lecture is five years too late to be ahead of the curve, right? <laughs> that there was a general tendency in the second half of the 20th century of the narrative that I described, which is about economic growth and the market, and that, you know, had this lecture been made in 1997, it would be deeply ahead of the curve, but everybody else is onto it as well, right? Um, and, you know, at one level, you could expect that at some stage, reality will begin to come through. People are aware of the disadvantages of inequality. They're aware of the limits of, of growth, etc. And I think there is an element of that. And certainly, it is quite startling if you were to do a comparison of this election campaign in Britain with the 1997 election, in the 1997 election, and I know this because I was running the, the Confederation of British Industry at the time, and therefore I was aware of particular uh, issues, there was huge amounts of focus on things like the UK's growth rate over the previous 20 years relative to the French or German growth rates. There were arguments about 0.1% of the growth rate. Right? You know, somebody said, we're, we're fourth in the growth thing. You know, we're at 1.9 and the French are at 1.95. So, you know, you're complete idiots, you know, because you haven't got us there. Um, the, the Tory campaign in 1997 was heavily about the enterprise centre of Europe, which, which Labour would destroy. Um, but Labour's proposition was very heavily about how they were going to achieve more rapid economic growth. And, and all, that's almost entirely missing. Now, in partly, I think that may be because, you know, we simply moved on. The question is whether it's really only changed because of the recession, whether the recession has changed things quite fundamentally. And to pick up uh, Alan Darendorf's point of view, but, uh, point uh, A, you know, 
I think there has been a major shift in attitudes to inequality uh, which are to do with the perceived fairness of it. You know, as I say, if people say that person is paid, you know, a million pounds a year, and I can understand that in some sense they do something, you know, either important or difficult or they have some unique talent, you know, people accept it. Part of the problem is that they had revealed to them that people were being paid not just a million but five million pounds a year for things that they perceive of no value whatsoever and indeed which they perceive as negative value to them. And that has shifted it and actually it's shifted the terms of the debate quite quickly. Let's remember on this issue of inequality, um, it, it's only about three years ago that the Tory party was playing around with ideas of the flat tax. They never came out in favour of it but George Osborne expressed some uh, support for the idea that income tax should be flat, uh, which at that stage, if you had applied it, would have been bringing down uh, the marginal rate of income tax from 40 to 30 percent. And there were favourable comments about how the Latvians had a flat tax. We've now in two years got to the Tory party talking not at all about that and saying that the increase to 50 percent, although they'd like to reverse it at some stage, is very, very low on the risk of priorities. Mm. So I think it's difficult, David, to know whether, you know, what has happened is the slow realisation of the limits of the previous narrative, and so, you know, I'm not ahead of the game because a lot of other people are there, or whether, you know, the, the recession and the financial crisis has just produced a crack, and then, of course, we don't know whether it's a permanent crack, or, you know, maybe in 10 or years' time, we'll still be seeing these increases in inequality, and they will, they will come back again, and, and, and maybe people you know, the, the, the existing narrative will come back. So, so that's why. Uh, on the point which was made, you know, uh, status competition is not unidimensional. I, I absolutely agree with that. Indeed, um, I, I think there's a lot of things that society can do to deliberately encourage multiple forms of status. Now, this is completely unreportable. Uh, on the, before the election, but because it's a nice little reportable fact, but uh, uh, no, not fact, but point of view. I don't see why we give knighthoods to people who are just successful business people. I can see why you might give a knighthood to somebody who is a successful business people and has given a very, very large proportion to charity or spent. But the idea that you should give a knighthood for somebody for services to business just seems to me flowing, throwing petrol on the fire of a particular form of status competition. You know, I mean. If we have a society where, for whatever people reason, people actually attach some status importance to, you know, a, things like knighthoods and honours, we should deliberately use that to lean against, mm. you know, uh, some tendencies in our status competition which we think have got overfixated uh, on the on the monetary side. But but we don't do that. We've spent the last 20 years, you know, basically saying. If you're a successful business person, I'll give you a night. Well, if you're a successful business person, you know, frankly, you've got a couple of million in your bank already. You don't need something else as well. So, you know, I, I do think, you know, we have made some of these, these tendencies in our society uh, worse. I mean, finally, I think, um, you know, I did agree. I think Robert poses a very, very tricky question about globalization. I, I, think, I think Robert is absolutely right that for rich, developed societies, one of the sort of truths that we don't state is that actually further trade liberalization has very little percent, uh, potential to increase even the GDP per capita of rich developed societies, even if we thought that that was you know, 
beneficial. It, 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 it's, it's pretty marginal uh, in terms of, of, of growth today. And I think probably a little bit more than Paul, I do think that if you look at the American data, one of the drivers of liberalization, of the increasing inequality of the 70s, 80s, and 90s is the complete reversal of the immigration policies after the mid-1960s. I mean, basically, immigration uh, stopped in America in 1925 with the Immigration Act. And the subsequent 40 years was damn good for the American working class. And it reversed dramatically back the other way uh, in changes in the 60s and 70s. And I think this played a non-trivial role in the reduction of the relative status of unskilled workers in, in America. Now, you know, this is a tricky area for people who think of themselves as having nice liberal points of view. But, you know, we, we have to recognize economic reality a, 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 as it is. But I think Paul's points about social cohesion and values are incredibly important. And I think I'm very aware, you know, all one can try and do in a lecture is throw a partial light uh, and, you know, try and suggest other issues. And I think this whole issue of what do we mean by values, what do we mean by social cohesion, and how, as Robert does, you know, is well-being the same as, as, as happiness is incredibly important. And, and, and I think also Robert's point of view there about, you know, is happiness the aim? You know, if we had a dictatorial society, I mean, maybe on Richard Layard's measures, on his brain scans, you know, the North Koreans at those big events are happy. But I'm still against that form of society. So I think, you know, and there are some things that I don't quite know how to resolve there, but I think they're very important issues. Well, thank you very much, Adair. Before I thank our speakers, three quick practical, more than practical announcements. Firstly, for anyone coming to High Table, drinks are in the senior common room at the top of the best building. Secondly, if you don't yet feel you know everything there is to be known about capitalism, uh, the European Studies Centre annual lecture in this room, 21st of May at 5 p.m., the distinguished German historian Jürgen Kocka will tell you more about the history and future of capitalism. Thirdly, please note in your diaries the date of Friday, the 29th of April 2011, for the next Dahrendorf Memorial Lecture speaker to be announced. I think we've had an extraordinary premiere, I have to say, definitely on the creative, not the distributive side of the economy, in my view, better both in substance and style than the leaders' debates uh, on television. And I can only say to you, Adair, but also to Robert and Paul, um, I think the greatest compliment I could give to you or anyone, which is whatever happiness is exactly, and however we measure it, I think Ralph would have been very happy with these two hours. So thank you both very much indeed.